Welcome to the U Triumph podcast, where we explore the triumphs and tribulations of extraordinary leaders from diverse backgrounds. I'm your host, Trevor Sterling, and across the podcast, I hope to inspire success by highlighting that irrespective of social background or personal characteristics, with fair opportunity and the appropriate mindset, ultimately anyone can be successful. From incredible achievements to key life lessons learned, the goal is to shed insights into the mindset, motivations, and stories behind the success. Because you triumph if you believe. My name is Trevor Sterling. I'd like to welcome you to a further edition of the You Triumph podcast series. As you know, as part of this breakthrough series, we're uh, interviewing inspirational uh, figures, people that uh, really support uh, three philosophies which I have. The first is that one must not aspire to climb the ladder, one must aspire to be the ladder. The second is that you triumph if you truly believe. And the third, most importantly, is that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things if they have a positive mindset and are open to the experience. I'm delighted to say that my first guest epitomizes all three of those philosophies. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome somebody who is truly inspirational and demonstrates the ability, has demonstrated the ability to not only break through, but to then go on to become the ladder. So I introduce the Dark Destroyer, the Chaser, Sean Wallace. Thank you, uh, Trevor, for inviting me. It's a pleasure for me to be here. So, Sean, in fact, uh, I think it was uh, four years ago, almost four years ago to a month, yeah. that you and I met for the first time. And I, and I remember it very well because, actually, I just uh, received um, an award, a Lawyer of the Year at the Diversity uh, Legal Awards back in 2019. And, you know, with these things, you know, there's all the music playing and you go up to... Uh, pick up your your gong as you were, um, and one of the things that made me particularly proud is as I got to the stage, um, I knew that I was going to be presented uh, the award by two um, inspirational figures. One, uh, of course, was yourself, uh, and the other uh, was the former president of the Law Society, I, Stephanie Boyce. But the thing that made me particularly proud is, you know, when I was on the stage and I'd received the award, the three of us stood there, and I thought. Wow, these are three, um, you know, inspirational um, black lawyers, uh, and that that was going to be something which would, uh, you know, really uh, present a great image for young people coming through. And and the, and the thing that was really interesting, uh, looking into your background, you're of course a barrister, uh, yeah. and I'm a solicitor, uh, is that in many ways there are so many parallels. Uh, between our stories, albeit you went on to become a barrister and I went on to become a solicitor. But the, the, the notable thing was that some four years later, almost four years to the month, the three of us came back together. But this time uh, we were talking to a room of young lawyers uh, and we were being the ladder. So, um, Sean, you know how it works. Um, I'm going to ask you to be the ladder uh, again today. And we're going to start with the top rung, which is 
you have been achieved your success, um, you know, what success looks like being at the top of the ladder. And then we're going to go to the bottom of the ladder and we're going to explore um, how it all started. Uh, and then we move to the middle of the ladder and that really is the journey that connect, connects the start to the top of the ladder. Uh, and we're going to discuss some of the obstacles uh, that you overcome. So if I can ask you to take us right to the top of the ladder, what, what does success look like? Um, what have you achieved? And if we can, if we can start uh, by going back to just 2004. Yeah, uh, I'd say post 2004, uh, I would say, uh, obviously becoming a chaser, the world's first chaser uh, in 2008. Uh, and um, aside from the chase, uh, it, it's still my uh, continuing passion and desire uh, to use my fame in a sort of altruistic way to try and help people get up uh, the ladder uh, and go beyond uh, what I've achieved so far as uh, my own uh, achievements are concerned. And so specifically in, in 2004, because uh, you, can, you can imagine why I took you back to that day, can you just tell us what happened then? I was the first black person to win the uh, TV quiz show Mastermind. But of course, not only are you um, the first black person to win Mastermind, you're also a barrister and, and, and still practising. Still practising. So we're going to come back to your practice as a barrister because I think that's um, particularly interesting. Not many people would know. Uh, but in terms of winning Mastermind, uh, I, I think I'm right in saying that you not just answer your own uh, um, questions, mm -hmm. but whilst you were waiting, uh, you would ask, answer some of the other contestants' questions in your own mind. Just tell us a bit about what kind of preparation uh, it took, you know, what was involved to, to get through Mastermind? Yeah, to keep myself sort of ticking over, because obviously you, you need to make sure that uh, when you're ready to actually uh, uh, enter and sit uh, and be interrogated in that spotlight, uh, you've got to be able to be confident in order to actually um, answer those questions. So that's what I was doing, answering other people's questions to see how well I was doing. Uh, and uh, it gave me the confidence to realise that, you know, uh, all you can do is answer the questions put in front of you. You can do all the preparation as long as you've done all the preparation, you can't obviously for, uh, see what questions are going to be asked. And, you know, thankfully for me, um, in terms of uh, the way in which I approached Mastermind, I thought like a, a question setter as opposed to a contestant. Because I was trying to uh, ascertain what questions they were going to ask me. And, you know, thankfully, um, they came up. And so you're, you're, you're given a choice on Mastermind in terms of specialist subjects. Do you remember what your your specialist subject was and and uh, and what was the the, the reasoning behind choosing uh, that as a specialist subject yeah they're all on football because of the fact that uh originally i wanted to do kings and queens of england and um uh international affairs since 1945 because you know i'm a, a lover uh, and uh I, I just love history uh you know no matter what uh, particular area, no matter what country, I, I'm just a, a passionate student in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the origins of society, the origins of, um, you know, any particular subject, because that helps you, as I say, have a greater understanding of your subject if you do have a, a passion for uh, the origins of something. One of the things that I, I found really interesting, actually, was, um, you know, when you got to the final, um, it was remarkably close and, and, and you had this strategy, which was, I think you got 24 points. Yeah. Uh, and you had this strategy, which was not to pass 
on any of the questions, uh, which I think you you, you achieved. Right? Yeah, uh, that was always uh, that was my main tactic, uh, not to pass. And uh, after I won Mastermind, I was the first ever Mastermind winner to actually uh, ask to uh, go back uh, to present a trophy to my successor. And they did a, a follow-up of me in relation to what my life was like, uh, you know, becoming a Mastermind champion. And um, I chose the venue of Hackney College uh, to actually be interviewed there. And the reason why I chose Hackney College is because when I was first starting out as a practicing barrister, you know, nobody's born an advocate. So I need to actually um, get some money to support myself through those, uh, you know, tough fledgling years as a barrister to support myself financially. And Hackney College gave me my great chance. So I taught there four nights a week for 14 years, and I was really, really grateful for the opportunity they gave me to teach. And I taught over about, you know, close on to around uh, nearly a thousand students in that time. And um, it was an honor and a privilege for me to actually honor Hackney College for the support they gave me. Uh, uh, the only uh, uh, thing, I, the only gripe I had with that uh, is that um, even though I became a mastermind champion, even though, as I say, I was working for Hackney College for the best part of 14 years, they could not spell my uh, Christian name right. It's probably S-E-A-N. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I said, I've got a big banner up, you know, coming home, you know, you've got the BBC TV cameras in, they've got Sean Wallace, S-E-A-N. I thought, well, this is a typical hackney, but uh, I love the place. Just go show it's all in the detail. If there's one thing that uh, frustrates me is when I see my name written, obviously surname Sterling, uh, but I see it written as S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G rather than S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G. Yeah, exactly. You know, as in the city, of course, yeah. So one of the things that people don't necessarily associate you with is is actually being a, um, a barrister, a practising barrister. And one of the things that really fascinated me, actually, was that um, during the process of getting to the mastermind final, in fact, even when you were actually at the Mastermind final, you were practicing and you were uh, in the middle of of a murder murder trial at the uh, at the Old Bay. That's that's right, isn't it? Yeah, I was I was a junior in the murder trial. Um, a dear friend of mine, Courtney Griffiths KC, um, you know, who's one of my dear friends and one of my sort of early mentors. Because uh, you know, when you first come into the profession. Uh, you know, um, I was one of the sort of young black fledgling lawyers. And sometimes, you know, you want to see people who look like you. And I'll never forget when uh, I was at uh, Wood Green Crown Court one time and Courtney Griffiths came up to me and sort of, you know, asked me who I was, you know, shook my hand, uh, you know, gave me all the encouragement. And when I uh, uh, started to do murder trials, he was the first person I wanted to leave me. Um, so, you know, we were preparing, uh, you know, a fairly big murder trial at the time. You know, thankfully, we, we got a not guilty as well, so that was good. So not only did you, you uh, win Mastermind, but you had the success of um, the, at the Old Bailey. And, and I, I mentioned earlier on that there's um, some overlap uh, between us in terms of, you know, inspirational people that we've met. Uh, I know that you, you know um, Peter Herbert of the Society of Black Lawyers. Of course. Um, and there are a number of other people where we overlap, one of which um, was um, or is uh, Paul Boating, Lord Boating, as he, as he now is. And, and in fact, when, when I um, started out in, in the early stages of my career, um, I, I happened to meet um, Paul Boating, um, and he, he reached out to me, actually. He said, you know, if, if you ever need a bit of advice, uh, get in touch with me. Um, and, I, and I wrote to him and he invited me to the House of Commons. I was about 24 
uh, 25, and he gave me a great piece of advice, which was, you know, if you go on to become a, a lawyer, you, you must make sure that you accept your civic responsibility and, and, and get involved in, in giving back. And so I, I became a governor of um, my previous schools, and that really got me going with charities and things. But but I understand one of the first things you did uh, after winning Mastermind was you decided to to enter into uh, politics back in, uh, I think it was 2005. I'll tell you the story behind it, because both Paul and I were in the same chambers for uh, uh, quite some time, and Paul actually was my MP. So Brent South, as I say, had the highest majority actually in the country at the time. So, you know, after I won Mastermind, you know, everybody uh, used to hang on my every word that, you know, they'd seek my opinion for this, especially black newspapers. And uh, one particular, and we was, in the, we was in the middle of the 2005 general election. I think it was about four, three weeks into the election. Uh, and I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine, uh, Rodney Hines, uh, who works for The Voice. Yeah, I know Rodney Hines or The Voice, so what a great character. Good mate of mine. And he asked me if I was going to be standing in, you know, if I was going to be standing in the election. I said, I've got no real interest in politics. But so Paul Boateng had invited me uh, to um, the then uh, uh, recently opened Port Callis House to celebrate my mastermind victory. But because I was so busy, everybody wanted a piece of Sean Wallace at the time. I couldn't make it until uh, the middle of the election. So we met for lunch and he had with him uh, uh, the prospective Labour candidate, Dawn Butler. So we were talking and I said to him, uh, oh, by the way, Paul, I got a phone call from uh, the Voice newspaper asking me if I was going to stand in the election. And Paul turned around and said to me, you stand in the election. You've got no chance. Now, I knew I had no chance. But don't be telling me that. And it was like waving a red rag to a ball. And I suppose I let the ego get the better of me. And after we finished lunch, I headed from there straight up uh, to the town hall at Wembley, paid my £500 deposit. There was only 10 days left for the election. Uh, and I stood as an independent candidate. Um, and um, I came fifth, actually, uh, which wasn't too bad. Uh, but I tell a sort of funny anecdote in the end of the book, at the end of the election. I said 3,000 people came up to me and said that they voted for me. 3,000 people said that. 297 votes. How does that work out? <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, at the time I stood on the election of, uh, firstly, uh, tuition fees, because I thought that the then Labour government had betrayed what I considered uh, uh, generations of students, uh, you know, uh, saddling them with, uh, you know, long-term debt and not being able to actually get on that rung, which we're talking about, in order for them to actually make their own uh, uh, way in terms of uh, the ladder of success. And I thought it was an ultimate betrayal in terms of, you know, burdening, uh, you know, future students and, uh, you know, potential lawyers, uh, potential doctors, potential, you name it, you know, with that burden. So that's why I stood. Well, a, a really sensible ticket to run on. Uh, and I think, uh, so you came fifth and lost your deposit, um, but brave to um, to, to still um, to stand. And it was Dawn Butler, wasn't it, that, that actually won in the end with a, with a fairly significant majority? Yeah, and me and Dawn are very, very good friends. We're, we're, we're good friends. But, uh, you know, I wasn't going to overturn a near, you know, 15,000 majority. But I, I suppose my ego got the better of me. And, you know, in, if I had been sort of dispassionate and stood back, I knew that I couldn't win. But I thought to myself, well, I, I don't want nobody to tell me that I can't do something. Why can't I do something? So I suppose that's a sort of drive in me in terms of having the passion, the determination, uh, uh, the resilience, I suppose, to basically try and overcome uh, obstacles that are put in your way.
But that's the incredible thing about you, though, isn't it? You, you know, you uh, were prepared to sit in the big black chair, uh, you know, with all the pressures that that entailed. Um, afterwards, you were prepared on, on the basis of that, you know, the principle you talk about tuition fees, etc., to stand uh, in a in a in a general election, even though you know the chances of winning were not particularly uh, great, and you've been uh, advised against it by. A little boating as he now is, but you you know you you were prepared to put yourself out there. And one of the things I I, I found really interesting with um, the various quizzes you, you you've been on because you were on a series of quizzes before you got to mastermind is that you were really prepared um, to put yourself out there and and appear before some fairly acerbic and difficult hosts. Um, I'm thinking of um, the weakest link, for example, um, with um, Anne Robinson. Yeah, Anne Robinson. Yeah. There's also um, was it Kilroy Silk. Um, you had the likes of Ruby Wax as well, um, and and Jem- Jeremy Springer, I think. Yeah, that was my first breakthrough the Jeremy Springer show on Greed. You know, I find that quite incredible, really, because you know you're up against the, the big names, and even when you were sort of starting out um, with with you know being on quizzes, you were prepared to, to not just enter the quizzes, and you know if, if you. If you lose, one of the things that was struck from uh, one of the things I understand from your experience is if you lost, you then end up sitting down with the contestants and having to watch the rest of the show. So there's that sort of sense of embarrassment, and you know, the weakest link. You're told you're the weakest link. Um, so some of the shows, you, you know, you face the, not just the kind of humiliation of, of not winning, but the the comments and remarks um, made by the host. What 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 was it that motivated you? to put yourself under that kind of pressure? Because of the fact that I, as a young kid, I used to love watching game shows. You know, I was always impressed by people putting themselves through the ordeal of, you know, being asked asked questions, you know, uh, in an intimidating environment, in an artificial intimidating environment, you know, bright lights shining upon you, an intimidating quiz master, you know, uh, watching studio audience, millions watching from the comfort of their sofa at home. And I wanted to do that. And it's easy basically answering questions, uh, you know, from the comfort of your sofa. But a true acid test is if you can do it in the environment where you're not comfortable with. And I wanted to do that. And as I said to you before, um, Trevor, the worst thing you can do on a quiz show is get the question wrong. So I also understand you came across somebody who I regard as being, you know, one of the best interviewers, but also at the time one of the scariest, and that of course is uh, Jeremy Paxman. I, I appeared with him when I was... Um, uh, co-leads on uh, the uh, Jim, Jimmy Savile child abuse um, cases, and I, and I found him uh, just a, a brilliant interviewer. But you know, I, I was I found it quite intimidating. Uh, and, and you you appeared uh, before him uh, on a on a quiz where he was the host with um, Piers Morgan. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was on Piers Morgan's team because uh, Piers at that time in two thousand and five was a bit of a sort of. Uh, uh, social pariah uh, in relation to the fact that at the time he was the editor of the Daily Mirror and there was this sort of um, scandal, unquote, in relation to uh, uh, some picture, uh, pictures which uh, appeared to be doctored in relation to the Iraq war. And he took, uh, you know, a bit of a sort of uh, hammering uh, in terms of his, you know, reputation. So, you know, he wrote a book uh, called you know, uh, My Year. Uh, um, it's, it's something about a, a year in 2004, 2005. So anyway, uh, he always used to take part in this quiz. It was a sort of glitterati of the who's who. And Jeremy Paxman was the host. So he rang me up and 
at that time I'd retired from cuisine because, you know, where could I go? They're not going to let me on who wants to be a millionaire because they realise that you're up against a mastermind champion. So Piers Morgan spent the best part of uh, a minute trying to persuade me to take part in this quiz. And uh, he managed to actually uh, bend my arm to when he mentioned the name that Paxman was going to be the host. And I always wanted to meet Jeremy Paxman. So we went along and I was the only black face in that room. There's about 200, you name it, to people from Stephen Fry to Sebastian Folks. Uh, and um, Pierce's uh, main rival was the then uh, editor of uh, The Guardian, Alan Rothbridger. Uh, but nobody surprisingly didn't know who I was. Uh, and we ended up winning the quiz. I think that, I think the penny dropped when we got to the final general knowledge round and people realized, uh, said, isn't that the mastermind champion of 2004? By that time, it was far too late. Piers and I, sort of, you know, uh, and the rest of the team, uh, you know, went off with the spoils. And uh, Piers wrote about that experience in uh, his book. And I was really touched that he'd actually mentioned that. And that's why we've become, sort of, I wouldn't say we were friends, but we, we've got a healthy, nodding relationship. So when I wrote my autobiography, I thought I'd return a compliment because it was, a, you know, it was a fun time. Okay, so, so we know uh, top rung of the ladder. And one thing we mustn't forget to mention is, of course, that you are... Uh, an author, um, Chasing the Dream, a, a brilliant book. Um, I, I said to you um, when, when we spoke that I, I, I didn't want you to send me any information, um, that I would do all my own research. And so true to my word, I, 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 I uh, got your book and it arrived um, Saturday. So uh, I think it was so long to read it. But once I started reading it from start to finish, I, I, did, I didn't put the book down. Uh, an absolutely um, brilliant um, read. Um, so, let's, so let's start with the start. So we, we've done the, the top rung, uh, mastermind champion, um, quiz master, um, chaser, uh, practicing barrister, um, you know, murder trial at the time of the uh, mastermind final where, where you were successful on both counts. Um, and of course, a, a, an author. But let's let's go down now to the first run. You know, what, what inspired you uh, to become a, a lawyer? Um, I, I know that there's, um, there's, there's just a few years between us, but I think there may be some similarities in terms of the programmes that, that we used to watch way back when. Uh, I, a lot of years older than you, mate. So I'm going to say a few years. You're being kind there. So uh, quite a few years I've got on you. So, uh, yeah, I used to watch programs like Crown Court, uh, Rumpole of the Bailey, Petricelli. So I used to watch all those programs and I was fascinated how people could use uh, their ability in a way to try and help and defend uh, those less fortunate within society. And I wanted to be like that. Plus the fact that you got to sort of wear costumes as, such as a sort of wig and gown. So, that, you know, that was an attractive proposition. So when I was um, 12 years old, I wrote to the Bar Council. Uh, and uh, it was the first letter I ever wrote. I remember uh, writing a letter, Dear Sir, D-E-E-R. Spelling wasn't that great at the time, Joe. Uh, but they returned the letter. They, rep they replied to me. They replied to me. And um, I was so excited. I kept that letter as a source of inspiration. And you know, when you, you have to go through that rite of passage uh, when you're doing your uh, 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 exams, and I don't know if you can remember, there was a two-tier division between CSEs, which are the so-called vocational exams, which uh, uh, certain people of a certain colour and a certain background had a tendency to be doing, uh, as opposed to the O-levels, uh, which again were sat by uh, if uh, you're white and middle class, uh, sadly. There was that distinction. 
And, uh, you know, before you actually embark upon that two-year course, you've got to go and see your careers teacher. And I remember I handed that letter to her when she said, Wallace, in a really cold and stern way, what do you want to be when you leave school? So I said to her, I want to be a barrister. And she turned around and said in a rather dismissive fashion, you, a barrister, at best you're going to end up uh, packing shells, but somebody like you is going to end up in prison. I mean, she was right about me ending up in prison, Trev. I only forgot to say that after having seen my client, I can go home again. So to be told that as a 15-year-old um, can be devastating. Uh, and as I say, that was the attitudes of educational establishments 40 to 50 years ago, that if you were black, male, the best you could do was drive buses, work in the factory, or sadly be engaged in the criminal justice system, and that's the only time you got to wear a suit. If you're a young black female, you're working in a typing pool at best, or sadly living in a high-rise council flat with loads of children running around your feet with no visible man uh, to support those children. So any dreams of being a doctor, lawyer, or dentist were seen as a complete no-no. And I remember um, saying uh, to myself that nobody, when I left that meeting, I was devastated when I heard that. But the one thing as a 15-year-old kid, I was determined to ensure that nobody's going to control my destiny. But the only way I could ensure that was to make sure I had an educated mind. Yeah, again, a, a shared experience, because I remember when I was at school, there was a tendency for teachers to say to people like me, you should do the CSEs, which were the certificate of secondary uh, education, as I recall. And everybody knew that O-levels, which went on to become the GCSEs, that that was the, the, the necessary yeah. standard, really. And, and um, I think I <laughs> I think I got maybe one more O-level than you. I got two, you, you, you got one, I, I recall. Um, but it, but it was difficult, and, and the choices I was given was warehouseman, um, tennis racket stringer, or, or um, you know an outdoor clock. Unfortunately, I, I took that and was able to, you know, eventually go on to become the first uh, black senior partner, having been elected to such a, at Moore Barlow. So, you know, the, the really tricky start through the schooling system, which you know we we shared that experience, but. But a lot of it is is also about you know our family and our parents and again some similarities because um, my parents are from a sort of poorer part of Jamaica in, in, in some ways a rural part certainly uh, which uh, is Manchester and I think your father is from the same place Manchester yeah and like my parents they uh, they came over uh, part of the, the, the Windrush generation yeah they they were the second wave of uh, Windrushers I'd call them you know again just in terms of you know the full story. We, we talked about where you were, where you where you've gone to at the top rung, um, but it's not as if you had, um, you know, parents that were able to sort of guide you through the academic system. What what did your what did your parents do for a living? Well, my dad worked as a food processor in Heinz for the best part of his adult working life, and my mum was a a state registered nurse. So. And although, as I say, uh, they divorced, ironically, on my 15th birthday, and I talk about that, uh, the one thing I was grateful for, the fact that, uh, you know, my dad still played an active and uh, positive role in my life. Now, sometimes, you know, um, uh, when you see uh, young uh, black men growing up, uh, and sometimes you wonder why they go off the rails because of the fact that uh, they didn't have that support in terms of having that uh, visible uh, male uh, patriarchal figure to try and you know guide you and help as you support you and that's exactly what I had uh, you know so when I told my parents that's what I wanted to be son why can't you be that and they gave me all the love and support 
uh, uh, that I needed. Uh, and uh, my first big hero I talk about in the book is my sister, Sandra. Now, as I say, you, you know how it goes, Trevor. Um, you know, uh, sometimes you have your elder, elder sibling uh, who lived in Jamaica, was brought up by the grandmother. Uh, and once the parents came over uh, to England to actually, you know, try and build a life for themselves, they'd then send for their elder children. Uh, and uh, my elder sister, Sandra, who was my mum's daughter, I've got another elder sister called Rose, who's on my dad's side, but they're still my sisters. They're, you know, they're my, they're my sisters and I love them dearly. And Sandra was my first big hero because she uh, gave me uh, the encouragement to be able to read and write by the, if, proficiently by the time I was eight, I was six and seven. And she gave me my first law book and I kept that book for law for years because she was always my sort of big hero, always my big encourager uh, to try and uh, achieve my own dreams. God bless families and God bless uh, uh, big sisters. Um, you know, I've got a big sister, uh, Corrine, who, who similarly really um, supportive. And, and like you, um, as, I, as I grew up, I, I learned of um, sisters and, and brothers, in fact, um, in Jamaica. But, but also your, your smaller brother, who I understand um, would always get one over you uh, when it came to playing Trivial Pursuit. Oh. I've never played Trivial Pursuit ever again uh, um, because my brother would always beat me on the last question and I was the king of Trivial Pursuit. And uh, just to go uh, to touch upon that point, Trevor, one of the uh, best things that happened to me after one mastermind uh, was when my brother found out, he gave me a big hug uh, and he said, Sean, um, I want you to bear this always in mind. You might be the champion of Great Britain. You know, you're not even the champion in your own household. And if anything keeps you grounded, it's comments like that. That's one of the things I love about your story. And, you know, when, when people, they, they see you now and, and hear about you now, they, they, they would say, oh, well, he's a barrister. So he went on to win Mastermind. What's, what's the big deal kind of thing? Because if he's a barrister, he must have gone through this, you know, privileged education system, etc. But the reality is that when you look at your story, I mean, it really does show that uh, how important family is. But also, you know, how difficult it, it, it was for you to, to break through the, the comments made by your teacher that you go and you sit your exams. But, you, you know, like me, we actually struggled with, with the exams and then you do the A-levels and um, that, that wasn't easy. And then you have to go to the right type of, of university and it wasn't a Russell Group uh, university. So when you hear the full story, it really makes you understand um, that with the right mindset, you know, you can go on to do extraordinary things. No, no. And Trevor, what, that's, one of the, Trevor, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Because, you know, people see you um, uh, near the top of this so-called ladder, which we talk about, or, uh, you know, there or thereabouts. Uh, they, they see you on telly regularly. They think you're rich, you're famous, you were born that way. But there is a backstory. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, because, uh, you know, it took, I remember 43 years ago, uh, when my A-level grades weren't that great, it took me four times to pass over the English language. Uh, and um, I remember when all my friends were going off to university and I wasn't, I burst out into tears because I was like the Muhammad Ali. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be the greatest. If you talk the talk, Trevor, you've got to be able to walk the walk. And it looked like, for me, um, an empty and idle boast. Uh, and uh, for me, there was no plan B because it was a lawyer or a bust. I mean, one of the other things I think is really fascinating uh, about your your journey is that, you know, later on we talked about those quizzes and, you know, where you weren't successful, but actually you kept on going and went on to be, to be successful and mastermind champion. 
And again, with those exams, particularly with English, which is, say, I think you took four times, but you, no matter what those results, and, and, I, and I felt with you opening those envelopes and, you know, didn't get the grades you wanted or weren't, you know, the, the, you know the, there was a sort of setback, you'd have to redo the exam, but you just kept on going. It wasn't easy, Trevor, because as I say, you, you know, the, the sort of my love of learning stretches back even as a little kid, and that was the encouragement I gave with my sister. But there's a difference between a, a reciting chapter and verse, the Kings and Queens of England, and knowing how to answer exams under the pressure of time. And I didn't have that technique. Uh, it was a technique which, uh, as I say, uh, I, I managed to actually develop and overcome. And, you know, when you do fail, sometimes it's easy to point the finger of blame. It was his fault. It was her fault. I didn't get the encouragement. But the one thing I always say to people, the first person you've got to look at is the reflection in the mirror. You've got to ask yourselves those hard, searching questions as to why I, did I work hard enough? Am I good enough? Why can't I do this? You know, and uh, I, I, I talk in the preface of uh, the book about uh, no man being an island. Yeah, people look at me now and basically say, uh, you're an epitome of success. But Trevor, as you know, um, it takes a lot of great encouragement and support with people to actually give you that encouragement. But I always say to people, and I mentioned it in the book, you can, um, you know, it's the old adage, you can uh, um, lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink it. So you've got to want it yourself. So in terms of influences, tell me about, um, tell me about Mr. Small, uh, your teacher, Mr. Small. Oh, uh, Mr. Gordon Small uh, is another uh, seminal hero in my life because he was my black law teacher. He was the first black person I saw as a qualified barrister. So he came from Guyana in the 50s. He, you know, obviously had to work in a factory, support a young family, taught, uh, taught himself through college, qualified as a barrister. So if you look for gold models, um, he was the epitome of a gold model for me. And he always used to say things, what you sow is what you reap, you know, and... Um, you know, he'd give up his Saturdays, uh, uh, um, you know, we could go around to his house, actually, you know, do our um, preparation for our law exams. And that selflessness had a, a profound effect on me. Uh, so when I qualified as a lawyer uh, and wanted to become a, a part-time lecturer, I did that because of the fact that paying homage to my law lecturer because of the fact that he gave up his weekends to help make me the person I am today. So when I used to say to my students, um, look, I'm giving up my time just like you are. So we're both making sacrifices. You're giving up crossroads, so am I. But I didn't drag you here. So I do expect you to work hard. Meet me halfway in terms of uh, me being, uh, 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 wanting to have the uh, desire to teach you because I want you to succeed and you giving up your uh, evenings, making that sacrifice so you can get the academic qualification to make yourself a better person. You know, well, we talked about, um, you know, the, the struggle through the sort of academic processes. Um, but I mean, that, that went up to, to degree level, didn't it? The degree was easier. And I'll tell you the reason why, Trevor, uh, because I've done it. I, I became an undergraduate. And those undergraduate years are the best three years of your life because you go there, uh, a, a fresh-faced, a, a bright, talented uh, um, a young thing. But when you come through that uh, academic conveyor belt and you get your degree, that is a sense of accomplishment. You now become uh, an educated uh, adult with the feeling like you've got the world at your feet. And that's exactly how I felt at the age of 23. Uh, there was one more hurdle for me to go through. Uh, and that was to try and to qualify as a barrister. Uh, 
And again, because of the fact that now I've managed to actually develop the technique of how to answer questions, because as you go through uh, uh, the um, stages of uh, O-levels, A-levels degree, you began to develop an idea how to answer questions, what the student, what they're looking for. It's not about citing chapter and verse that you can remember all the cases. They want you to think like a lawyer. And over those three years, that's how I began to develop uh, uh, that technique. And I managed to pass the bar finals at the first time of asking. Uh, but, but by struggles, what I meant was really, um, you know, there's this whole thing about you've got to go to the right type of university, Russell Group. Um, and, you know, what, what you did was you went to, a, you know, a more local university and, and, and still, you know, <laughs> smashed it, right? So the, 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 it's not necessary to go to... Russell Group uh, universities and, and for organisations to sort of require that for you to be able to enter our profession. No, not at all. And, you know, ironically, as I say, in 92, when, you know, uh, polytechnics and universities emerged into one sort of uh, entity. Um, so um, I, when people say to me, well, where did you uh, read law? I've read law at the Polytechnic of North London, and I'm not ashamed to say so, okay? Right. I'm not ashamed to say so. And um, what I love, uh, the fact that, you know, <laughs> nearly 30 years after leaving, um, they awarded me a doctorate and I wanted to cry um, that they awarded, you know, the university, uh, I well, the now university, we should talk about, they gave me an honorary doctorate. And some of my old lecturers um, knew, uh, you know, they were following my career. And I remember I, I was doing an advert uh, for a Carla Bingo company, and one of uh, uh, the uh, execs was the daughter of my old law lecturer. And she sent me a message saying that how, and it, it, it makes me choke up even now because I talk about her in the book, Janetta Harden, because she actually interviewed me to, for me to get into law. And she said that she was so proud uh, to see her little Sean Wallace, you know, develop into the man how he, he's become. And, uh, you know, she's looking down even now, uh, you know, wherever she is in the heavens. And uh, that gives me um, a sense of pride because people like her made me the person I am today. They gave me the opportunity to say, yeah, Sean, we want you to join our course. We think you're good enough. And for me to, um, you know, when you start out in life, Trevor, uh, as a, you know, even as a little kid, um, if you were to come to my house now, I've got a mural on my wall uh, called My Inspiration. Um, you know, people like Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, uh, Bob Marley, Jesse Owens, uh, and the centre of it is my mum and dad. Uh, because as a young black kid growing up, you know what it was like in terms of uh, 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 overt racism, which was rife in the 60s, early 70s. But these were people who were making a um, significant contribution on the world stage. And guess what? They're the same colour skin as me. Pelé. Three World Cup winners medals, Muhammad Ali, Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X. I was proud to be black. And I used to say as a little kid, if I had a little fraction of what they've achieved, then my life's going to mean something. Never in a million years, if you were to ask the young Sean Wallace, um, you were going to be a mastermind champion one day, I'd turn around and say you're a liar. But you know what? The one thing I don't suffer is imposter syndrome, because I am. You might not, but when it happened, yeah. the minute they said, Sean Wallace, Mastermind, Trevor, tear, I, I don't think I've ever been happier. Um, I, I mean, I'm not married. I've not had a kid. 
And I'm sure it would be the equivalent if I had my first child or my second child, I got married in terms of the sense of pure and utter joy I felt in that moment. And I didn't tell a soul. Uh, the first time my mum knew was six months later because I needed time to reflect. I thought, when people find out what I've done, they're going to go nuts. But the one thing was not going to change. They, they may go nuts around me, but my life's not going to change. My friends are not going to change. Where I live is not going to change. Trevor, I'm speaking to you from the road I grew up on 59 years ago. Yeah, I love that, Sean. You, you've stayed true to your roots. You still live the same road where you were born and bred. And I live just four or five miles away from, from my, my parents and my sister. It's really, it's a powerful thing that is, isn't it? Family connection. Nearly 60. It's going to be 60 years on in February 2024. Okay, so we've completed the first run. Let's, let's, let's now move to the second run. What connected you from you know the, the early part in terms of your qualification through to the um, success um, that you, you went on to have, and and also the you know the obstacles and challenges. Okay, so if we, if if we were to talk, okay, so I've come off the academic conveyor belt now. Uh, I'm a qualified lawyer. I've taught the talk. I've managed to walk the walk. Behind me, the day I got called to the bar, was my mum and dad. They were there. The son didn't turn out to be a thief, didn't turn out to be a wastrel. But even at that point, Trevor, when they handed me the certificate and we was all celebrating, you know what the one thing was struck home to me? All the success, all the tears, all the eventual success, all it done is bring me to the start line of a different challenge. And guess what? The guns fired and people around me are probably ahead of me. So you know what, guess what? Yeah, live the moment just for that second. But if you live if you live in that moment far too long, guess what? Opportunities are going to pass you by because you're still stuck in that groove. You've still got to keep moving. So that's why I call my book Chasing a Dream because I'm always setting challenges for myself. So basically, as you go from run to run, you've still got to understand that whatever run you're on, there's more to go. You've got to keep setting the goals, keep climbing. Yeah. Trying to grab that greasy pole to get to the top. And it wasn't easy. Uh, but the one thing I wouldn't do, I wouldn't compromise. Okay. I remember where, at the time when I got called to the bar, I remember seeing all those illustrious names on the walls of uh, uh, lawyers gone by at the uh, Inner Temple Hall. And I, I thought to myself, you know, where am I going to be in 10 years' time? Where am I going to be in 20 years' time? But the one thing, uh, Sean, you should always make sure as a barrister, don't talk like anybody else. Be yourself. Right, be a professional. You've been taught how to be a barrister. Use that, uh, those skills that you've been taught, the art of research, the art of thinking on your feet, the art of giving professional advice, the art of taking nothing for granted, no matter how trivial or no matter how serious the case is, it requires the same attention to preparation and detail. Always put your client's interest first. You put your client's interest first and you use that mantra as a lawyer you become more proficient, you become, you know, you become more dedicated, you become more confident. That's how you begun to climb that greasy pole, because you know how to navigate it, you know how to grab hold of it. And when you become, and when you become that lawyer who's confident, who's clever, who clients want, right? It's not about you chasing the money or you chasing the briefs. If you're good, they'll be chasing you. I love that. I mean, it really is about um, being your authentic self. But also, I know with you, I mean, when you uh, went into um, to do the quizzes, um, 
you you know bought yourself I think five or six encyclopedias and you just read and read and read and learned. So you were prepared to put those hard yards in. And and I think that's the same for me in in my work. Whatever success I've I've had, I always recognise um, that it's about the next thing I'm going to do, not the last thing um, I ju I just did. And I think it's the same with you, isn't it? Yeah, because you know there there, there were times, Trevor. You, you know, as I talk about in the book, I'm Thursday's child, like the old um, nursery rhyme nursery rhyme adage. Thursday's child has far to go. So there is ups and downs. There's been peaks and troughs. There was a time, where, uh, you know, throughout my career, uh, on two occasions, I went through an entire year without losing one Crown Court trial. But you know, it's not about it's not about winning. It's about making sure that you are a professional lawyer. And if you're good uh, and you prepare and you take your client's interest seriously and you sort of, you know, work upon uh, the preparation of the brief in a thorough way and knowing the case as if you're going to sleep, that's how I prepare. When I'm reading a brief, you know, I try to envisage it in my mind's eye because if I envisage it in my mind's eye and try and put myself in the shoes of my client and try and put myself in the shoes of the prosecutor, I know what type of questions I'm going to ask. Because the key to me is when I'm cross-examining, ultimately, is to undermine the prosecution witnesses. Similarly, when I'm representing a client, um, when I'm taking them through chief, uh, I'm preparing them for them to give their account. And I'm going to ask them searching questions. Because if you can ask searching questions, when it comes to being cross-examined by the prosecuting counsel, you're going to be able to answer them. So for me, it's always about preparation. No cutting corners, just be prepared to do the hard work. There's no substitute um, for that, right? Yeah. The one thing about work, Trevor, and hard work, it doesn't do itself. If you put the hours in, uh, 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 then uh, you will have a... Um, you'd understand what you're trying to actually achieve in the work you're putting in. Uh, you'd have a greater understanding of it. And um, the one thing I always say about uh, learning and revising and preparing... Um, it shouldn't be a chore because it's a it's a lifestyle choice you make wanting to be a lawyer. You know what it's going to involve. You know it's going to involve preparation. You know it's going to involve reading briefs. You know it's going to involve having conferences with your clients. You know it's going to involve you telling your client not what they want to hear, but using your professional skills by basically telling them where they stand in relation to the issue that they come to seek advice from you from. So I would never ever tell a client what they want to hear. If you, want, if you want that, go to another lawyer. Because that other lawyer will not be doing you any service whatsoever. All that lawyer is basically doing is looking for you um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of cash cow. Um, so I will never, ever um, put my client's uh, uh, interest below um, my own sort of financial sort of well-being. And the one thing I always tell clients, when I represent them, and when I, you know, more times often than not, because I've had a fairly good uh, track record in terms of um, uh, acquittals. The one thing I always say to my clients is this. I don't want to see you anymore. You know why? Because I don't want to be rich at the expense of your liberty. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact you've taken your values, your authentic self, everything that, that uh, sort of got you to become a barrister. Never change, just stay true to, to yourself and prepare to put the hard work in and Certainly, you know, with the, you know, I've, I've been blessed to, to have been involved in 
some of the country's more most significant cases, uh, and every one of those cases has been about, you know, what can I do for for this client? But most importantly, um, my ability to do that is by bringing my true self um, to the case, and that's something which I, you know I, I really feel uh, has been the case with you as a as as a as a lawyer, and in fact as a person. And hopefully, some of the individuals have taken your advice. Some of them do. I ran into one yesterday, the other day. I was walking, he goes, Sean, do you remember me? I said, no. He goes, well, you represented me in 2004. Well, that was 19 years ago. And I've represented quite a few clients then. So, you know, I do see clients who I've represented. I remember I represented one. Uh, I have a client the other day. Uh, and he became a qualified solicitor. Uh, I secured an acquittal for him. Uh, on a high profile um, importation of drugs. And he became a qualified solicitor. And that gave me such a sense of pride um, to know that, you know, if you do have a long uh, blot on your landscape or a potential blot on your landscape, it doesn't mean to say that you cannot turn your life around. So tell me about Jamaica, the, the uh, motivation in terms of going back there, you know, how strong is the connection there? What, what, what draws you back to Jamaica? Because it's my parents' ancestral home. Full stop. That's where they came from. You know, this is where they've had the struggles. You know, I went to see where my mum grew up in a shack uh, in St. Anne's Bay. You know, if I was to show you now, Trevor, hold on, let me just quickly turn it around and show you. Can you see those drawings there? Right. That uh, is a combination of uh, when I was on a DNA journey uh, with Anne with Anne uh, Hegarty, uh, and they managed to actually trace my ancestry back going to 1735. So I had drawn uh, images in my mind of what my great 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 grandparents looked like, ranging from Bess, who was the last name on the slave register, to Sarah Burney, to all of them. And the, the, the apex of that is my mum. You know, you touched on something uh, really important because history is a driver. And when I think of my, my parents' journey, it certainly has driven me. And, and you know, you go back, way back when. And, and um, the, you know, one of the challenges with that is it, it can actually start to, to, to get you down. So the, the important thing about acknowledging our history when, when you learn it and understand it is um, that, that it mustn't, be a be a negative fuel it can traumatize you but you know what you can't do i mean i don't want to sound uh, um, blase about it the one thing you can't do is unscramble an egg uh the one thing um y- you know uh is that uh they've my my forefathers have gone through uh, a great deal of trauma personal trauma physical trauma in order for me to exist so all i so all i can do is to try and do my best in the life I've got uh, for them to actually look down with pride to know that the sacrifices they made have made me the person I am today. So, so there's a benefit of breaking through, which um, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand. So if you've been uh, on, a, on a traumatic journey, you know, or if you've just been on a journey of of lesser privilege you come from, you know, low, lower socioeconomic group, and therefore that brings with it um, various struggles. 
And if you break through, then actually your ability to be able to pull others through is huge um, because you've got you know that wide range of, of experiences because you've climbed so many rungs of the ladder. And, and I suppose the most important thing, which is why it's so important um, for me, uh, that we don't just aspire to climb the ladder, that we aspire to, to be the ladder. And obviously you've managed to, to break through um, and your journey is so incredible that you're you're really able to to be able to you know share the story your story in the way you have, but not just the glossy bit, not just the top bit, but but the the, the lower rungs, um, and and I guess fame gives you that opportunity. Yeah, and more, and more importantly, Joe, it's the public that make me famous, and uh, for me, uh, when I uh, look back on the people who have helped me, uh, I have a platform which I'm so grateful for, which will allow me to basically uh, be the rung for you to climb up now. I always see myself now, I, I see myself as a, um, okay, people call me a beacon, people call me an icon, people call me a hero. I, I, I'm not too comfortable with those words uh, because of the fact that I said to you before, Trevor, I make mistakes like everybody else. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you deify and you put people on a pedestal, uh, particularly if you're black, uh, the fall from grace can be swift and unrelenting. So I'm comfortable close to the floor if I make my mistakes, but I will make mistakes. Uh, you've got to learn from those mistakes. But more importantly, um, people can see me, uh, people can talk to me, people can touch me, not inappropriately, obviously, but, but I'm approachable to the extent whereby if I can help you, I will. Because it costs nothing for me to put that ladder of opportunity for you to climb up those rungs. But I don't want you to get to my level. No. Go past me. Keep going. Keep going. Because you know why? I'm today's news. I'm tomorrow's chip wrapper. You know, one day, one day, I need to pass that torch of responsibility onto you. And if you believe in the philosophy I've talked about, then you know what? You're going to now be the you're going to be the leader now you're going to be the person that people look up to uh, and as i say it's a perpetual philosophy it's a perpetual ideology so for me once i shuffle off this mortal core i want to name sean wallace to live on you want to name trevor sterling to live on for what you've done for what you've achieved for what you've represented for what you stood for right uh, because that's inspired people who see you uh, as a beacon of hope, a beacon of wanting to be, uh, a beacon of aspiration. You can pay nobody no greater compliment. Yeah, teaching people to build taller ladders. So, so what about for you? I mean, what 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 comes next? What's your what are your your your, your next set of um, goals and, and 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 ambitions moving forward? Still chasing dreams. Still setting goals. Still setting. The minute you stop growing, Trevor, that's it. That's it. And being a self-employed person who's always worked for myself, right, and doing stuff that I love, it's about setting challenges uh, for myself, uh, for, for other people to follow. Because once you break that concrete ceiling, you make it easier for others to go through that ceiling. You then become the pathway for people to actually make uh, their own road.
Because I always say the road to uh, the road to success is always under construction. And if I can be that paving stone, okay, I might be a landmark. It might be that landmark on that paving stone, just like you see outside the, you know, the, the stars in um, uh, outside of uh, the Grauman's Theatre, whereby your name is there. But all I am now is just a name on that paving stone. Guess what? Somewhere along the line, somewhere along that path, you're going to have your own name. You're going to be that star. That some path, so I mean, the ultimate thing is you, you, you never stop walking, right? You keep, keep, keep walking. Sometimes I feel that I'm living in a parallel universe, Trevor. Sometimes I think I'm going to wake up, you know, and, oh, God almighty, <laughs> it's been a disaster. Uh, you know, I'm 40-odd. I don't know whether or not uh, my future's behind me now. Uh, I'm finished. But I suppose you've got to go through the odd adversity uh, in order to actually come through it. Uh, and I'm glad I've come through it in terms of resilience, the determination, uh, the uh, refusal to lie down, uh, the support of people who've really got my best interests at heart, the talent. But isn't that the most incredible thing about you, Sean? I mean, that's why I've, I've found it so um, so enriching to to do this podcast with you because, you know, when we talk about that top run and, and, and we, we think about, you know, fame or celebrity, um, people can form the wrong opinion. They can think, well, the whole journey must have been pretty easy. But in your case, it, it wasn't. It was about finding your way with the, the love and support of your, your family, the inspiration of your older sister, the plain trivial pursuit with your younger brother. It was about opening those envelopes and seeing um, that you didn't get necessarily the, the path uh, and therefore you'd have to redo the exam. It was about accepting um, that, you know, okay, I might only have one O-level, but I'm still going to push on. I'm going to do my A-levels. I'm going to do a degree. It was about, you know, finally becoming a barrister and having your, uh, your that, that sense of pride that your parents had was a kind of fuel to drive you forwards uh, even more. And even through your career, when you when you reach your 40s and you haven't, you know, perhaps gone as far as you would have liked and, and you were thinking, oh, you know, am I going to be able to, 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 to make a living? Um, Cross-qualifying, as I recall, um, as a solicitor, but then still deciding that you were going to stick with the bar, going back to the college um, to, to, to lecture, giving up your time. Uh, and, you know, just keep on working, you know, working at it, buying the encyclopedia so you could be the best you could be in the quizzes, those earlier quizzes where you weren't successful and then finally becoming uh, the mastermind champion. Uh, and then what you do with that is you keep setting yourself goals. You don't see yourself as a role model, but as a goal model. Um, and in doing that, you, you're just intent on, on, on giving back, on using your story to inspire uh, others so, the, so that there is this level playing field. I mean, that's quite a remarkable thing. But what it does show, what it absolutely shows, is that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things if they have a positive mindset and they are open to those experiences. Trevor, it's, uh, I'm so grateful that I've met people like you because, uh, as I say, um, you are, just like me, um, a person to look up to, to be inspired by, uh, uh, who have the same ideals in terms of uh, uh, being altruistic, 
being selfless, uh, wanting to actually uh, um, help others uh, and appreciating where you are in order for you to have that platform for you to do that. So, you know, for me to be on this podcast um, is an honor. And I'm not just saying that because uh, you've given me the platform for us to both share the same stories, the same experiences that we've uh, had to endure uh, for us to get to where we are now. So thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Sean. And uh, let's hope that uh, we can uh, find a little bit of time to, to have some kind of a beverage uh, on a beach in the grill at some time. Uh, in the future in the grill Jamaica thank you so much uh, it's been a, an absolute uh, privilege and a pleasure um, and, uh, and I feel enriched for the experience you certainly do triumph if you believe my pleasure thank you so my experience of, of doing the podcast with um, Sean Wallace um, deserves uh, I think just a, a, a couple of moments of reflection um, so you triumph if you believe is uh, both a, a, a podcast series uh, and a mantra if you like to to inspire other people that no matter who they are what their background where they're from um, they can achieve but I think what really comes from uh, the podcast with Sean uh, are two really uh, key additional features one you never ages but a number and um you know sean when he was in his 40s still hadn't really broken through in the, in the true sense but he but he just kept on going and he was prepared to adapt himself so you know there was a number of things he was doing he's still practicing as a barrister he was entering uh, quizzes he was lecturing at his college so this is somebody who was both, um, you know, aspirational, but incredibly industrious. And, and that's really important because he, he kept that going. Um, and, and age wasn't ever going to be a factor for him to say, I'm not going to make it now. And I think the second thing with Sean, which I think is really, really important, is that he lifted as he climbed. And... You know, he went back and he lectured to perhaps a thousand or so um, students. And, and when I was with him uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were both there talking to um, a room full of young aspiring lawyers. So he really does believe that the purpose, really, of of his success and his fame is to to be that ladder to to leave a legacy. And I guess my, my final thought on that is, how great would society be if, as and when we broke through, we actually felt that it was a priority to, to use the advantage and the privilege of breaking through to bring others through? How great would our society then be? Uh, and put it another way, if we don't do that, how fragmented will our society be? So I think it's really important that I finish with this. Don't just aspire to climb the ladder. Aspire to be the ladder. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for the You Triumph podcast. I've been your host, Trevor Sterling, and this has been a journey of triumphs, 
and the mindset that makes them possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, like, and leave a review. Your support helps others discover the show and the valuable insights shared. Join us next time as we continue to unravel the stories and strategies for succeeding in life. Remember, you triumph if you believe. And if you've achieved, one must not aspire simply to climb the ladder, but to be the ladder.